This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Episode 32, Korea's New Oceanic Mode. downtown Seoul stands a great heroic-sized statue of the legendary Admiral Lee Sun-shin. At the turn of the 16th century, Admiral Lee was the nemesis of the Japanese attempts to conquer Korea en route to a putative invasion of China. Instead of facing east toward the Korea Strait, scene of his greatest triumph, the Admiral's statue faces south toward the Yellow Sea and the Great Pacific beyond. Whether intentionally or not, he stands as a symbol of a new Korea for which the ocean has become of great importance and also as a symbol of Korea's determination to leap over Japan to reach the USA and other leading world economies. Peninsular Korea was a preeminent example of a continental state until the mid-20th century. Overwhelmingly rural and agricultural, few towns existed other than the capital, which dominated political, commercial, and cultural life. Korea was the most steadfast and significant member of the Chinese international order a Sinocentric tributary system. Koreans defined foreign affairs in terms of relations with China, which they perceived as an elder brother in the Confucian sense of entirely honorable dependence, carrying mutual responsibilities for the Chinese as well as the Koreans. Korea also had a close cultural relationship with the Japanese, and the Korean cultural thrust carried huge influence in Japan's prehistory. From the other side, the Japanese thrust was political, not cultural. The Japanese made attempts to create a territorial presence on the peninsula, like that of early England in France. But these early efforts showed that the Tsushima Straits were simply too broad to sustain any presence. The state of maritime technology did not then permit it. But Koreans would become vigorous participants in that largely uncharted, unrecorded maritime, commercial, and piratical history of the China Seas. This was private and spasmodic, not governmental. It was a matter of trade, both legitimate and otherwise, not a political matter. And like the Japanese, the sea seems to have had little impact on Korean literature, visual arts, or culture in general. War's End in 1945 liberates Korea from 40 years of Japanese colonialism 
This had been especially harsh, indeed brutal, because the army took charge. It made a legacy of deep bitterness. Cold War politics divided Korea north and south in 1948. This was like Germany, but ironically, unlike Germany, Korea was one of the world's oldest nation-states. The peninsula plunged into bloody and immensely destructive, inconclusive war from 1950 to 1953, part civil, part international. The U.S. total command of the sea was a major reason for success in pushing back the North from its nearly total engulfment of the South. We can perhaps say that Kim Il-sung, leader of North Korea, the DPRK, failed because he did not grasp the importance of sea power, whereas General Douglas MacArthur used it to brilliant effect. The Incheon Landing which no one except MacArthur said could be done successfully, imaginatively attacked North Korea behind the lines, and the North retreated. But MacArthur had no real plan after Incheon. He did not study history and failed to anticipate Chinese intervention, not understanding Chinese sensitivity to an alien presence next door. With Chinese entry came a costly stalemate and the present frozen frontier, a continuing, unresolved conflict. War shattered and devastated an impoverished peasant economy and split the nation decisively. The North, intrinsically much better off than the South, had minerals, the South had only agriculture, with a per capita income on the level of one of the poorer African countries. With limited land and few raw materials, the ROK South Korea was Ghana without chocolate. What follows is a tremendous success story. South Korea is the only nation to move from dependency on foreign aid to dispenser of it within a working life. And for the last 25 years, South Korea has been a functioning democracy, if a tormented one. Liberation from colonialism caused a creative eruption of primal energy expressed in art as well as in politics and the economy. Grievance over exploitation and humiliation from the Japanese occupation served as an initial stimulus. Americans are not immune from Korean bitterness, despite our 1950 intervention and rescue of South Korea from communist rule. Koreans remember the secret toft Katsura American-Japanese Agreement of 1905, interpreted as an understanding on spheres of influence. The Philippines was consigned to the United States, Korea to Japan, although there was nothing in writing to that effect. In the DPRK, feelings are much more intense. 
In my only visit there in 1989, I saw primary school books used to teach English, unlike our banal American Dick and Jane readers. Instead, they were used as vehicles of vitriol, means of indoctrination, Jeremiads against Japanese exploiters and American aggressors, as well as those who collaborated with them, described as flunkies. This was my introduction to the term flunkyism, which I often heard during my week in Pyongyang. And yet then, in 1989, if on the street you smiled, you got a friendly response except from people in uniform. North Korea is still a closed nation, a hermit kingdom like Korea in the 19th century. Any interaction with the outside world is tightly controlled, with a society remaining more traditionally continental than oceanic in its orientation. For the ROK, competition with the North spurred accomplishment in a struggle to survive its looming threat, heavily armed and aggressive, with its natural resources enjoying an initial economic edge over the South. In the South, society emphasizes education and hard work. The Confucian tradition is even stronger than it has been in China. The only resource the South possessed was abundant, cheap labor, well-educated and basic skills, thanks to the positive side of the Japanese occupation. The Japanese wanted workers with at least minimal skills. An army officer, Pak Chung-hee, seized power in 1961. A brutal and ruthless leader, Dur even grim and austere, he made no attempt to ingratiate himself. Even though his daughter would subsequently be elected a president, he is not widely admired. Nonetheless, the man was undoubtedly of great importance to his country. He personified change. British historian E.H. Carr asserts, circumstances make the man rather than the man making circumstances. In Pock's case, Carr's dictum could be reversed. Pock sprang from the army and created a military dictatorship. He acted without precedent. Korea being a society with an ancient tradition of civil rule, Pock made himself the instrument for change to lift the country out of poverty. His formula was political repression and social regimentation, that is, indifference to human rights, to any notions of compromise, and with no consideration for environmental sustainability. Pak was not an economist, but he saw wealth as a key to power. His slogan was simple, Let's live well, like China's Deng Xiaoping later, who proclaimed, to get rich is glorious. Pak became CEO of Korea Incorporated. He built an export-driven economy and was heavily influenced by his own Japan experience. 
Attracted by the 19th century Meiji model of government-led forced draft modernization, he remained strongly ambivalent toward the Japanese, but he was highly pragmatic and he restored diplomatic relations with Japan in 1963. Although this was unpopular among the Korean people, he saw the economic benefits of a relationship. Park remained in office until a shocking event in 1979. His own security chief shot him dead at a private dinner at the Blue House. The reason remains uncertain, but was perhaps a power play. Park had accomplished much. He had argued that Korea must discard the hermit kingdom past. And move out into a wider world. The ocean could be the medium for survival, although he never specifically articulated it as such. Politics had severed the ROK from mainland Asia. Those nations were all hostile. Thus, the ROK became a virtual island, but with the same strategic problem as the Netherlands. Even worse, because of the constant existential threat on its land frontier. Unlike Britain, the ROK could not face the ocean without distraction, but the Koreans were able to exploit the opportunities the ocean offered. The first priority at sea became coastal waters to defend against North Korean infiltration. To use brown water space as a means of moving military and other supplies with ships, and to exploit the sea as a source of food from fisheries, the ROK had a keen interest in coastal shipping for large, heavy, and longer distance cargoes to reduce the congestion of highways and to lower costs. Port infrastructure is much cheaper to construct than highways or railroads. Later, as a new industrial economy developed, the government gave attention to the global shipping industry. Park's motto was, "Our cargo in our ships, made by our own hands." The objective was to avoid relying on foreign bottoms for economic reasons, because such dependency could adversely affect final prices, both of what comes in and what goes out. For traffic overseas, the government designated certain cargo that must be carried by Korean flag ships, thus ensuring reliable supplies of major raw materials and a self-sustaining merchant marine. The shipping industry grew in quality and sophistication, along with the maturation of the rest of the Korean economy. Pohang Steel becomes the world's first or second largest, and Korean shipyards currently turn out more ships than any other nation except China. Three quarters of newly built ships at sea today are from Korean yards. Koreans can build all types. Tankers and oil drilling platforms, as well as container ships, they built the triple E class container ships for Maersk. Of that type, the largest ever, 
the E represents economy of scale, energy, efficiency, and environmental cleanliness. Korean shipyards have produced not for the domestic market, but primarily for the foreign market. Daeu built the then world's largest yard, seven and a half times the size of a football field, boasting a crane 360 feet high. Korean shipbuilding became known for quality and delivery time. Success in the shipyards broadens to a wider functional and geographical scope. In distant water fishing, the ROK became globally number three. Koreans were active in investigating continental shelf resources and in claiming large oceanic territory, far larger than the landmass. And Koreans even engaged in Antarctic exploration. The Koreans are ambitious. They want to become the business hub of Pacific Asia. Near Seoul, the Incheon Airport location carries advantages being midway between Tokyo and Beijing, the world's third largest economy, Japan, and what has been the world's most rapidly growing major economy, China. Kim Dae-jung, when president from 1998 to 2003, proclaimed the 21st century to be the era of the ocean. He launched a project, Ocean Korea 21, seeing oceanic industries as major contributors to national development. Currently, the maritime industries comprise 7% of GDP. These embrace shipping, trade, fishing, and a new mariculture, a fish-raising industry capable of large-scale, low-cost production. This has served as an incentive to combat intensive pollution of coastal areas by protecting estuaries, marshes, and wetlands, reflecting a new official environmental consciousness. The Koreans are looking toward exploiting deep seabed minerals, tidal and wave power, creating floating islands and underwater storage places. All this they describe as hardware. Software is knowledge. Expanding the knowledge base is the goal. Much of this is inchoate, and yet the determination is there. As an outsider, I am struck by the intensity of Korean nationalism found in both the ROK and the DPRK. On the positive side, this undergirds a drive to succeed. On the negative side, it promotes xenophobia and intense tribalism, an inwardness not characteristic of oceanic societies, and at a time of rapid global change, possibly corrosive to continuing progress. We can ask, how will this set of traditional attitudes interact with Korea's professed ambition to become the world's leading oceanic nation?
Next, we'll take a big jump back to China. Remember that this is where we think that global maritime history might have begun. Next time, we'll start by thinking about an Atlantic model for China in episode 33. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg, recording by 1623 Studios in Gloucester, Massachusetts, production and distribution by Albert Buichade-Foray. Goodbye until next time. <laughs>